Good to see you this morning. Um, this morning as we begin, I want to do a special time for our boys and girls who are in with us because we're so boys and girls, I got a story time for you. Come up front and sit up here with me. We're glad normally our older kids are gonna all be in the kids' worship on Sunday mornings, but today they're here with us and we're excited to have them on and say, Y'all come on down. I'm not too scary, right? I got a story time for you. It's a story that the adults have been studying with me the last two weeks as we slowly go through the Gospel of John. And we're on week three of the same story. So I think y'all will go through it a little bit faster in y'all's class probably than we are right now. But I want to tell you a story. I want to read it to you from the big picture story Bible. And it's a story called A Dead Man is Raised to Life. So let me get where hopefully you can all see it. Can y'all see this? Okay. A man named Lazarus was very sick. His sisters, Mary and Martha, knew that he was dying. They wanted Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. So they sent for Jesus. Jesus loved his friends. But when he heard Lazarus was sick, he did a surprising thing. He stayed where he was. He did not come right away. Jesus knew that God was going to use him to do something amazing. Jesus Jesus was going to show God's power over death. So Jesus waited until Lazarus died, and then he went to be with his friends. By the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had been in a tomb for four days. Martha met him and said, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus replied, your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Martha said yes. She believed that Jesus was God's king and son who was sent to bring life to the world. Then Mary came to see Jesus, and Jesus saw her crying. He went with Mary to the tomb, and then... Jesus cried too. Some who were there saw Jesus and said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They did not know that Jesus was getting ready to show them that God had sent him to rescue people from sin and death. Jesus told them to open the tomb. Only then did Jesus step forward and pray. Jesus prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I said this that they may believe that you have sent me. Then in a really loud voice, Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? He came out. Yeah, he came out. God answered Jesus' prayer. Lazarus came out. He was alive. A dead man was alive again. Jesus showed the people that God's spirit had power to bring new life. Many people believed in Jesus on that day. They believed that he is the, here's the one who will rescue God's people. They believe that he is the one who, have become, who, who has become God's place. Here is the one who even rules over death and can bring God's blessing to all the peoples of the earth. The people were ready to make Jesus their king. But, little boys and girls, that made the leaders angry. They were jealous of Jesus. They hated him and did not want him as their king. They decided that the time had come, they would kill him as soon as they could. Thanks for reading that. We're going to talk about it more with with everyone now. So if you want to return to your seats with your mommies and daddies, thanks for coming up and listening to the story with me this morning. So that's from the Big Picture Story Bible. I highly recommend it, moms and dads, if you don't have it. It's a great resource. It's actually out in the hall if you need a copy of one there. Well, as we think about this story of of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this is our third week to consider it. And so you already know what happens now if you didn't know before because you just heard the whole story from the boys and girls. So there's no surprises coming for us, at least, because we know what's happening. I want us to think about one particular part of the story. And before that, I want to ask us a question to get us thinking. Have you ever heard the expression, I'll believe it when I see it? Ever heard that one? Sometimes it gets phrased a different way, seeing is believing. So whether you say seeing is believing or 
I'll believe it when I see it, is an expression that's quite common to our experience. In fact, we probably use it a lot. I've said it, you've said it, you've probably heard it in lots of ways. We'll say it with sports teams. How much at the beginning of the season you hear promises, we're going to be a great team, we're going to be national champions. Yeah, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, right? Or you hear it from politicians when they give the election promise. We'll cut your taxes, we're going to make jobs go up, all these things are going to happen. And yeah, well, seeing is believing, right? We use this in other venues as well. We talk about entertainment. The new, new movie comes out in a series of movies, and it's a letdown. The director's promise, the next one's going to be amazing. It's going to bring back the passion of the first one. Yeah, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. We even use it just in our relationships. You hear promises, I promise I'm going to change this time. I'm so sorry I let you down again. I'm going to change. Well, seeing is believing. We use it in lots of areas of our life, and if we're not careful, it becomes easy to do that with our faith also. To approach our faith in terms of I'll believe it, when I see it. Now, we normally don't say it quite that bluntly, but it's what we say when we say things like, God, I'll follow you if you'll just fill in the blank or whatever you want God to do. God, I'm going to stop this sin if you'll just give me, you can fill in the blank for whatever we want God to do. When we say those things or act those ways, what we're saying is, God, we'll believe once you do what I want. We'll believe once you act the way I think you should act in this situation. But Jesus is going to show us in this, as we finish up the account of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Lazarus being raised from the dead, we're going to see from Jesus that he's going to flip that. It's not that seeing is believing, but he's got a very different path for us when it comes to faith in him. So turn to John chapter 11 in your Bible, or find John 11 on your Bible app. We're finishing the historical account of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so we've seen over the last two weeks. This is the account of Jesus giving them this trial for the good of the disciples' faith, for the good of our faith, and for the good of their faith also. God's bringing good out of this. It's the account of Jesus loving them so much, he gives them this trial to move them beyond the what-if moments of life. It's an account you already read to the kids. You know what happens. Jesus allows Lazarus to be sick. He allows him to die. He doesn't respond right away. They grieve. They bury him. Mary and Martha see their brother put in the tomb. The tomb's sealed. He is buried at that point. But Jesus comes after four days. He cries with them. He points them to God's glory. And like we read to the boys and girls, he raises Lazarus. And with that all said, there's one main thing I want us to focus on in this text today. There's many things we could say, but one thing I want to focus in on this morning, and that's simply this. Jesus calls us to believe often before we see. You can think about it in life. A lot of times we do seeing as believing, or I'll believe it when I see it. But Jesus calls us to believe, and though God's God, he can do it whatever he wants. He can show us ahead of time what's going to happen. Oftentimes, he calls us to believe before we see, before we understand, before we even know what's going to happen. He's calling us to faith. And we're seeing it here in the seventh miracle recorded in the Gospel of John. It's the final miracle recorded before Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. And so would you stand, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going to be in John chapter 11. <coughs> Excuse me. We're going to start today in verse 33, just to pick up a little bit of where we left off last week, and go to the end of the chapter. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. John chapter 11, starting in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, 
come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the, from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Father, I thank you for your word. I'm thankful that your word is powerful and your word changes us. And God, I pray today that you would let your word come alive to us. And a story that many of us have heard since childhood, I pray today that we might have fresh eyes through the work of your Holy Spirit to see it and to see how it changes us as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I want you to see in this text that Jesus calls us to believe often before we see. Now, the context of what we're looking at here, everything in this account is framed in terms of believing. That should be no surprise to us, right? John wrote this gospel for us, John 20, 31, we talk about a lot, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So everything in this whole book is about believing, but especially here in this text. I want you to see how this is all really about believing. Go back to even what we looked at last week before today. Go back to verse 15 in chapter 11 here. And notice this. And for your sake, this is Jesus speaking, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may what? You may believe. Jesus is doing this so that they might believe. He's speaking to the disciples here. He's speaking to the belief, the faith of the disciples, but not just the disciples. Look at verse 26 of John chapter 11 here. Here he's addressing Martha. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you what? Do you believe this? Yeah, he's speaking to Martha now. Do you believe this? And then what we already read this morning, verse 42, he's now speaking to the crowds who are watching. These are the mourners who've come because of Lazarus' death. Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may what? Believe that you sent me. Everything in this text is about pointing to belief. The belief of the disciples, the belief of Martha and Mary, the belief of the mourners, the crowd who has come. It's all about belief. But particularly, we get a lot of insight in what this belief looks like when Jesus speaks to Martha once again. And here we see that Jesus calls Martha to believe even before she sees. So look back at verses 38 and 39 so we get the context of how Jesus responds. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, and I love this, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Friends, there is no question what's happening here. Lazarus is dead. He is so dead that they're concerned there'd be an odor if they opened the tomb. Four days have now passed, and Martha, who's the practical one, points out the very obvious thing of what will happen if they open the tomb. But like last week, notice Jesus' response to her. He's very gracious. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't correct her on this. He just gives her some loving direction to point her to what she needs to be focusing on. Jesus says, open the tomb. She protests because of the odor. And look at what Jesus says in verse number 40. Jesus says, did I not tell you 
if you see the glory, then you'll believe? No, something wrong there? That's not what it says, but that's how often our brains work. If you see, then you'll believe. But that's not what Jesus says. He flips it on her and us here in verse 40. Notice what he says. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's a huge difference. When you believe, you see the glory of God. Understanding who Jesus is, understanding what he's doing here, friends, is only available through faith. And don't miss that. Understanding who Jesus is and what he's doing is only accessible, is only available through faith. It won't make sense otherwise. Jesus calls us to first believe, and that's often before we see. That raises two questions. First of all, what are we to believe? And second of all, what do we see if we believe? So let's try to make sense of verse 40 with that. So first of all, what should we believe? They're grieving right now. Mary and Martha have lost their brother. They've lost their source of income. They've lost their family member. They've effectively almost been widowed here because they have no source of provision in that culture now. They're grieving. What does Jesus tell them to believe in? He doesn't pat them on the back and say, smile, think positive thoughts, you're going to be okay. He doesn't tell them, get over it, just everything's going to be okay, move on, I know it's okay, it's normal. He doesn't tell them that. What does he point them to? It's what he saw last week. Last week he points Martha to who he is, to believing in him specifically. This is not a generic hope. He's pointing them to believe in himself. And remember last week she confessed brilliantly, you are the Christ the Son of God who is coming in the world. And we see something similar here in what Jesus is calling her and us to do. Again, look back at verse 40 again. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I believe he's calling her to believe in two particular things right here in this one verse. First of all, he's calling her to believe that his words are true. That his words are true. He says at the beginning, you know, to here, Did I not tell you? Think back to what I said. He's reminding her of his character, that his words are true. And so the question is, will Martha trust him in this? Will she trust that Jesus' words are true? So once again, she's brought to a point, will she focus on that decaying body in the tomb? Or is she going to focus on the fact that Jesus is trustworthy? Is she going to be focused on the what-ifs and the situations of life? Or is she going to focus on the one who's standing before her who is trustworthy? So he calls her to believe that his words are true. But second of all, here in verse 40, he calls her to believe that everything is about God's glory. Friends, this is so hard for her and for us because we focus on ourselves in life. But he's saying, listen, all this is not really about you. This is all about the glory of God in these things. If you think all the way back to the beginning of chapter 11, two weeks ago, in verse number 4, Jesus said to her this, or said to the people when he got the message, this illness does not lead to death. In other words, that's not what it's ultimately about. It is for the glory of God. And so he's pointing her to this fact. What's going on is for the glory of God. Realize at this point, Jesus has not said to her, I'm going to raise Lazarus. He's not said to her, everything's going to be okay at this point. The only thing he's done is he's shown up, He's reminded her of who he is, that he's the resurrection and the life. He's pointed her to eternal hope, and he simply said, open the tomb. He's not told her what's going to happen. She doesn't see yet. She doesn't understand what's going to happen. But he says, in the midst of this, though you don't understand, that you don't know what's going to happen, you can believe I'm true. What I say is true. You can believe all this is happening by God's plan for the glory of God. And realize at this point that Martha does not know what will happen. She doesn't know. We're on this side of history. We know when the tomb opens, Lazarus is going to come out. She does not know that yet. She doesn't have access to what we now know. She's yet to be told what's going to happen. She's called on by Jesus to believe that he's trustworthy, what he says is true, and that everything is happening for God's reason, for the glory of God. And is that enough for Martha? And it appears to be so. We don't have any record of her objecting. There's no, but Lord, this doesn't make sense to me. Why, Lord? There's no record of her saying, I can't open that tomb. This is crazy. What are you thinking? Jesus simply says, I'm trustworthy. This is for God's glory. And what happens? Well, look at verse 41. In verse 41, so they took away the stone. 
Apparently it was enough for Martha. The reminder of who Jesus is and that this is all for God's glory was enough for her to be able to obey and to believe. And friends, that is an incredible example for us when we find ourselves in the what-if moments of life. Because God usually does not tell us ahead of time what's going to happen. He calls us to believe often before we see. And He calls us to believe that He's trustworthy and His promises are true and that He will be glorified. Friends, if we believe that, that leads to the second question. What is seen? What do they see here? Well, I think it's more than we first think. Let's look at what they initially see with their eyes. Verses 43 through 45. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, obviously, what happens, he gets raised to life. But can you imagine the scene? I mean, it's easy for us to get familiar with the story, but can you imagine this? The graves open, people are worried about the smell. Jesus calls out with a loud voice. And out comes this guy. His feet are bound. He's like somehow like waddling out, like you know, wrapped up in cloth, and comes out of the tomb. Notice Jesus has to tell them, unbind him. Why does Jesus have to tell them that? I think they're all stunned. I mean, why else would Jesus have to? I mean, would, why are they not running him like, Lazarus is back? I mean, I, I can almost picture a silence there as this guy kind of comes waddling out of the tomb as best he can. And everyone's just looking. And Jesus is like, um... Go, go and bind him now. He, he's alive. It's okay. I mean, don't miss the wonder of this familiar story to us of what happens. And Martha does believe, but what does she see now in life? Yes, she sees her brother come back to life, but I don't think that's the greatest thing she sees here. Remember as we've looked at the other six signs, other six miracles in the Gospel of John, signs are not in, the, in and of themselves. The miracle's primary point is not for us to be like, whoa, that's cool. The point of a sign or a miracle is to point us to something bigger, something greater. Signs are pointing us to something, a bigger truth than even the sign itself. And so this miracle is not primarily about Lazarus coming back to life. What does Martha see? What does Mary see? What does the crowd see? They see Jesus' greatness on display. They see the power of God on display before their very eyes. They see people all around them confronted with the truth of who Jesus is and being called on to believe as well. So yes, they see Lazarus coming back to life. But they see something bigger than Lazarus coming back to life. They see the power of God on display. They see who Jesus is, and they see ultimately what verse 40 was. They see the glory of God. Again, look back at verse 40 again. I think it explains it all for us. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? As you remember through the Gospel of John, taste and see is a metaphor that it means to experience. Yes, they saw Lazarus come forth with their eyes, but they also saw, they experienced the glory of God right there before them. Not from a distance, but in a very personal way. Jesus called them to believe, and when they did, they saw the glory of God. But that's not the experience of everyone watching. Obviously, it was for Mary and Martha and for some of the crowd, but that's not all the crowd. Look down in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Friends, catch this. Again, there's people standing there in the crowd who come to mourn, to grieve, they see a dead man come out of a tomb, wrapped up. Everyone's standing there in silence. Jesus is saying, go and bind him. They see him unbind him. And this dead man who's been dead for four days is alive again. Are they jumping up and down rejoicing? Are they celebrating with the family? They're running back to the house being, let's have a feast. He's alive? No, they're tattletales. They run off and they go tell the Pharisees, he did it again. He's doing more signs. And they're trying to get Jesus in trouble. They don't believe, though they've seen with their eyes this miracle, they don't believe in their heart who Jesus is, therefore they've missed the glory of God in this. They do, they've seen, but they don't believe. Jesus calls us to believe so we can see. And look at what happens as a result of what they do. Start back in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? 
For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, I love this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So what happens when the authorities get wind of this? They don't deny the miracle. They can't. It's obvious. A dead man is now at home eating dinner alive, celebrating with his family and friends. There's no way to, to minimize the fact Jesus has done this and many other miracles. And if you notice in their language in this, they said he does many signs. They don't deny this. They don't try to explain it away. They recognize he's working miracles here, but they decide they need to stop him. And what are they going to do? Well, Caiaphas, who's the high priest, comes up with a plan here. And he says, basically in his plan, listen, the whole nation's going to perish. Rome's going to get involved if we keep doing this. So let's kill this innocent man. It's better for him to die than our whole nation, our whole way of life change. So Caiaphas is the one who puts forward the idea, let's kill this innocent man, Jesus, so that the whole nation is spared in this. And the religious leaders at the time agree. Look at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Okay, don't miss this. Jesus has just taken a dead man and brought life to him. And these people don't celebrate. Instead, they try to now bring death to the one who gives life. A man, Jesus has stood before a crowd and brought a dead man back to life. And instead of responding in celebration and worship and belief, this crowd's heart is so hard, they now try to put death to the man who can bring life on this. How could they be so blind? They've seen a miracle that can be explained by nothing apart from the hand of God and the power of God. How can they miss it and be so blind? Well, the answer is back in verse 48. And this was stunning to me as I've been studying this one this week. Because it shows a lot about our human heart. This is what they said, the chief priests and the Pharisees, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Realize that the religious leaders here, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, had a place of incredible influence and prestige in the community. They said, basically, if people start following Jesus, he's going to start being promoted as a king, a Messiah coming. If he does that, Rome's not going to let this happen. They're going to squash any type of thing that's foreseen as rebellion. And if Rome comes and gets involved, they're going to hurt our whole nation. Listen, we're going to no longer be Pharisees and Sadducees. We're not going to have a place of influence anymore. We're going to lose our position of influence if Jesus continues to succeed in this. Why don't they believe? Because they're fearful that Jesus is going to change their way of life and remove them from their place of authority, respect, and prestige. What's going on here? They love their glory more than God's glory. They love their own glory more. They, again, listen to the words of verse 48. They say this themselves. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Our way of life is going to change if we can't, don't stop this Jesus. They like their life like it is, and they didn't want God to mess it up, so they don't believe, and they miss God's glory, though they can plainly see with their eyes a miracle happening before them. And the human heart doesn't change, friends. Is it any different today? People are confronted with the truth of who Jesus is. The heavens declare his glory. There's so much evidence all around us that there is a God who is working. There's a God who's made this world. There's a God working all things according to his purposes. And there's people who refuse to believe, either because they love their own glory, they want life about themselves, or they know that following Jesus will change them. It's going to cost them something, and they don't want their life to be changed. They don't want their position to fall. They don't want their way of life to be different. So they find excuses or just ignore God's work on display. My friends, that danger is not just for non-believers coming face-to-face with who Jesus is. It's a danger for you and I as, as brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Because it was a danger for Martha. Remember, Martha was loved by Jesus, and she loved Jesus. And it was a real danger for her as well. Because as we've seen over the last two weeks, and we saw it way back in John 6, the trials are going to come. 
Life is not going to go as we planned. Life is not going to be easy. We will face trials in this life. God has promised us that. And in those trials, are we going to believe in who God is before we see, before we understand? Are we going to be one who in the midst of trials begins to demand of God? God, you owe me an explanation. Why is life not working like this? I've been faithful to you. We're going to start demanding of God. I need an understanding, God, of this reason if I'm going to follow you. We start demanding of God. God, I need to know how this is going to turn out. And so do we give to God demanding to know, to see, before we believe? Or do we go to him believing, trusting him to do what he knows is best? Jesus calls us to believe often before we see. What are we called to believe in the good times and in the bad, in the trials and the easy times? We're called to believe that he's God. We're called to believe that he is on his throne, that he is ruling perfectly. He's not up in heaven going, oops, I didn't see that one coming for you. God is sovereign and ruling, and he is on his throne. We're called to believe, even if we don't understand, even if we don't see in the moment, we're called to believe that he is good because he's told us that he's good. We're called to believe that he is trustworthy, that he is true. And we're called to believe what we've already seen from the last two weeks and what we see in Romans 8, 20, that all things work together for good. In the midst of the trials, in the midst of life not making sense, that we're called to believe that God is good and he is bringing good about it, not just for us, but he's up to a bigger good for his kingdom, for other people as well. And that ultimately we're called to believe that whatever's going on, God will get glory in it. And friends, if we believe those things, then we'll see. It doesn't mean we'll understand. We may die not understanding why we went through particular trials, particular sufferings, particular pain in this life. But if we believe these things, we will see God at work. We will see the power of God. We will see who God is. We will see him working in ways we couldn't imagine. And we will ultimately, like they see here, we will see God being glorified. Whether we're on the mountaintops or we're in the valleys, we will see God being glorified if we believe. Jesus calls us to believe often before we see. Friends, with that in view, that leads us to a time to respond to this through communion. It gives us a chance to respond to what God's word is saying. I want to remind us, week after week, we see that the gospel of John demands a response from us. And our text demands a response for, uh, from us as well. And I want us to go back to verses 51 and 52 of the text we're looking at this morning as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion together. This is after Caiaphas has said, it's better for this innocent man to die than a whole nation perish. But look at what John shows us on this. In light of what Caiaphas says, in verse 51, John, who's writing the gospel for us here, records this. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Friends, realize this. In the midst of the, the Pharisees and Sadducees making plans to kill Jesus... God is at work. He's on his throne, and he's advancing the timeline. The time is coming very soon for Jesus to be crucified. Everything is, put, is coming into, set, being set into motion on this for Jesus' plan to die to rescue us. Jesus came to do that. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, it's a reminder to us of verses 51 and 52, that Jesus would die for the nation, but not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God. Communion is a chance for us to remember that Jesus has gathered us, and his gathering us, yes, is free to us, but it was incredibly costly. It cost him his body, his blood. It cost him dying on that cruel Roman cross. And friends, with that in view, communion is an invitation for any of us who know Christ in a personal way to participate. This is only for people who are children of God, who have experienced God's forgiveness, who have experienced the fact that we have been restored to a right relationship with God. And so if you're a follower of Christ, it doesn't matter what church your membership's in, but if you're a follower of Christ and you're trusting in Christ alone to forgive you of your sins, if you believe, like we see throughout the Gospel of John, what belief is, you are welcome to come celebrate this with us. As we come to that, though, brothers and sisters, I want to remind us something we read very often from 1 Corinthians 11, but we don't ever need to get too familiar with this because this reminds us 
of why we're about to do what we're about to do this morning. In 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, Paul's writing to the people in Corinth. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing this. We're proclaiming our faith in Christ. We're proclaiming our belief in Christ and that his sacrifice is what has made us right with God. But more than so, listen to what it says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is not saying we approach casually or lightheartedly. And so this is why when we celebrate communion, I encourage you to in your seat while you're waiting to come forward, and even once you get the elements, there's no rush. Take time and talk to the Lord. Specifically this morning, I want you to talk to the Lord in response to what we've been seeing in John 11 over these three weeks about Lazarus. I want you to talk to the Lord about your belief. In the highs and lows of the last few weeks, are you believing that God is God? Is your life showing that you believe that God is on his throne, that he is ruling wisely from heaven? Is your life showing that you really do believe that he is good, that he's he's bringing about good for you and for others through you? Do you really believe he is receiving glory? I want you to think about some of these things we're talking about from John chapter 11. And before you take the elements, why don't you just talk to the Lord and say, Lord, search my heart, show me. Is there any area I'm wavering in my belief? And friend, before you take the Lord's Supper, get right with the Lord on that. Ask him for grace upon grace to believe as he's called you to believe, even if you don't see, even if you don't understand all that's happening. And perhaps as you're seeking the Lord, he may show you areas of sin in your life you've not confessed. I'd encourage you, don't take these elements if you've got unconfessed sin in your life. Do business with the Lord. Talk to him. Be reconciled to him before we celebrate what he's done. He's come to, make, to set us free from our sins, not for us to remain slaves in bondage to our sin. So friends, if you need to remain in your seats while we observe it, there's no shame in that. I'd rather you do business with the Lord than to come take these in an unworthy manner. There's no shame in doing so, just doing business with the Lord. But I encourage all of us to make sure our hearts are focused on the Lord and focused on what he's done as we observe the Lord's Supper this morning. And so what we're going to have you do is we're going to ask our, our, praise, our deacons to come right now to help, it, help me serve these to you. And then we're going to ask our praise team to come as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion together. Then our deacons will direct you. So what we're going to do, we're going to take the juice to remember the blood of Christ. We're going to take the bread and remember that Christ's body was broken on the cross so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins. A sacrifice had to be made. God is so holy, he can't overlook sin. A sacrifice had to be paid. And Christ did it so that you and I might be set free. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful that your word is so true. And God, I'm thankful that you've put into the hearts of us, your people, belief. Lord, we know that belief is a grace gift from you. And so, Lord, even this morning as we celebrate communion, as we reflect on your word from John 11, God, would you strengthen our belief? Would you, through the work of the Holy Spirit, help us to believe that you are God? Help us believe that you are on the throne. Help us believe that you are good. Help us believe that you are ruling and that you are over all and that you are working all things for your glory. And God, I pray today, if there's anyone in the room whose faith is wavering or struggling, that you would strengthen it right now. That even as they look at the bread and look at the juice and remember your body and blood, Lord Jesus, I pray you would strengthen their faith. Or if there's anyone in the room who has strongholds of sin they've not dealt with, I pray this morning, even observing communion, they'd remember what a sacrifice there was, what a cost there was that they might be set free. And I pray you'd stir within their hearts a longing for freedom from whatever it is that's been plaguing them. Or if there's anyone in the room who's never trusted you, who's never believed, 
Spirit, even this morning during this time, your Holy Spirit would so be wooing them and drawing them. They would so, so stirring. They would know they need to come to you and believe. Lord, you know what you need to do in each of our hearts, and we pray you do it, Lord, as we've seen in this text this morning, so that you might receive glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just invite you to stay where you're seated till the deacons direct you to come receive.